3: Welcome to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
4: Welcome to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And we do uh, also mention every week that we have a special introductory offer to induce you to try these letters. Uh, they're lower-cost, one-time-only separate um, offers for each letter. You can go to miningstocks.com to learn more about that, or you can call my assistant in New York, Claudio Bossi. Uh, his number is 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426. That would be through the normal work hours, Monday through Friday. Also, uh, I like to say that the best website to keep track of all of the, all of the things that I'm doing is JayTaylorMedia.com. That's J A Y TaylorMedia.com, T A Y L O R Media.com. You can access this radio show, uh, a lot of the videos that I uh, shoot. I interview CEOs of mostly mining companies. Uh, they are posted there at J. Taylor Media as well. You can have access to all three of the newsletters, and there's some more information and more uh, video work that I do, uh, television work that I do as well on CNBC, Fox, and, BN, uh, and um, uh, CNBC. Well, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show again, for making it the top show on the business uh, channel of the Voice America Network. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, they are Crocodile Gold, Go West Limited, Travalli Mining Corporation, Enertopia Corporation, Smash Minerals Corp., Ariga Gold Corp., Sand Gold Corp., and Palangio Exploration. Well, today's feature guest uh, is well-known and highly regarded market analyst Ian McAvity. I can remember many years ago seeing Ian on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. Frequently, he would be a guest there through the 1970s and 1980s. There are few people who are as knowledgeable about the market and technical analysis uh, as Ian McAvity. He will have some very important things to say today about which way he thinks the equity markets are turning, and he will also have some, uh, I think, even more important information and comments for the listeners to this show and subscribers to my newsletter about gold and gold mining shares. In just a few minutes, I will be talking to Dr. Mark Cruz. He is the president and CEO of Trevally Mining Corporation, and this is a company that figures to be the next lead copper and silver producer in the americas it is uh its economics look very promising um and um we're going to hear more from mark uh from dr cruz in just a few minutes uh we note that the economics look very promising even though the share price is uh, is down quite a bit from its highs so we're going to want to know if this might be a good entry point for this company given uh its fundamentals and during the second half of the uh, today's show, we are also going to be talking to another sponsor of this show, uh, Mike Hoffman. He is the president of Crocodile Gold Corp. Mike has been with us several times on this show. Uh, but Crocodile is making some progress, and they have some news that they just released today that Mike will be sharing with you uh, when he comes on. That would be during the second half hour of the second hour. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm... Uh, uh, struggling with a cold here as I sit here in uh, beautiful British Columbia, uh, where I've just uh, been at a, at a show at a mining show, and also did several uh, video shoots, which you will be able to see some really interesting companies. Uh, this is a, a very very bullish time for the mining sector, and in particular, I think very bullish for the gold mining sector, which I've been talking about. The company we're going to talk to uh, in just a couple of minutes is very much involved in silver, and I am very very bullish in silver as well. Well, we're going to go to a commercial break right now, and when we come back, I will have Dr. Mark Cruz with me. As I mentioned, he is the president and CEO of an up-and-coming new mining company, soon to be a producing company, we believe, Trevally Mining Corp. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Cruz.
0: Enertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Enertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CNN. SX Exchange.
1: Travali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Travali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV.
5: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by.
0: America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
2: Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding.
4: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have with me today Dr. Mark Cruz. He's the president and CEO of Valley Mining Corporation. It's a company that trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol TV. Uh, and you can buy this stock in the United States in the over-the-counter market under the symbol USOTC, I believe, if I'm correct about that. Uh, it's trading at about $1.35 uh, today, uh, 89.8 million shares, gives it a market cap of Roughly 121 million dollars. Welcome, Dr. Cruz, or shall I call you Mark? To turning hard times into good times.
6: Thanks, Jay. And please, Mark. Mark is fine. That works for me.
4: Okay, fine. Well, I know that uh, going through the rigorous, uh, uh, the rigors of, that's required of a PhD, it's uh, it certainly it gains my respect. And um, but I also appreciate the fact that um, that uh, you are doing something really to create wealth uh, for. For people and you are really making it happen. Uh, as a mining company, you are about to go into production in not one, but two properties. Uh, one of those properties is in Canada, Canada and the other one is in Peru. In Canada, uh, your company is uh, holds the half-mile deposit, I believe, near Bathurst, New Brunswick, and then in Peru, uh, it's the Santa Santander. Uh, which one is going to go into production first? Yeah, um,
6: our half-mile project in New Brunswick is slated to enter production late the third quarter, early fourth
4: quarter this year. And is your project in Peru slated to still get into production this year or will it slide into the next year?
6: Uh, absolutely, no. We're, we're still on track. We're um, shooting to um, commission the um, mill with our partners Glencore International late this year. It may slip a bit, but so far we, we are on track. Um, to a certain extent, you know, in the end of the day, it's not the end of the world. Where rigs are still turning in Peru, and, you know, we're pretty confident we're going to hit more, um, you know, high-grade mineralization going forward. So it gives us a chance to, to add to the mine plan anyway if there are slight delays. Mm-hmm.
4: Is the, the operation in Peru, Is what is the uh, joint venture arrangement there?
6: Yeah, it's a pretty unique arrangement, it's obviously with Glencore International, the world's largest metal trader, fourth largest zinc miner on the planet, and really the relationship with them is is very strong. They're basically our mine department, so they're designing, building and operating the mine at cost, and they're also bringing a 2,000 tonne per day processing plant um, to site. Um, Obviously, what they get out of it is is an off-take agreement, the right to market the zinc concentrates, Um, you know, they're very bullish on zinc going forward, as are we. And we get paid international benchmark for those. So, you know, whatever the price is in the London Metal Exchange, that's what we get priced for our commodity. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly one of the reasons they're doing that is the historic concentrates produced from the old mine, um, and we're looking at brand new deposits on our property, what was very, very high quality. So the Santander zinc concentrate set the local benchmark. That was what every other zinc concentrate coming out of the central Peruvian ore field was measured against. And we're pretty confident, you know, that the future zinc cons will be as uh, equal quality, if, if not higher, going forward. What makes you
4: so bullish on zinc?
6: Really, I mean, if you look at global demand, I mean, it, it's pretty simple. Um, you know, demand is increasing, you know, anywhere from 2 to 4%, depending on who you want to listen to. But probably more importantly, there's been no major zinc discovery since 1995. So a lot of the big global mines are simply exhausted or will be in the next year to to two years tops. Um, So demand's increasing, there's less product available, and there's increased industrial uses for zinc as well going forward. So really, you know, it looks like from where we are today, that there's only one way that zinc prices are going to go, and there's no major mines on the short or medium-term horizon that can impact the zinc market from from where we are today. So Mm -hmm. I think it will be a very good time to be a zinc zinc miner. Certainly the smelters and the end users get that. There's been an awful lot of activity where the smelters from Asia are going downstream, and they just have to buy the zinc mines in order to secure future supply. So, you know, I think
4: it's going to be, like I said, perfect timing for us to hit our production marks. Mm -hmm. Well, while we're on the topic of zinc, talk to our listeners a little bit about the the economics of that project. Uh, What is your resource to start with? What do you have there?
6: Yeah, certainly. Well, in in, in Peru, we, we net everything back, actually. They're polymetallic, so we're actually going to be producing a quite a bit of silver as well as by-product, mm-hmm. um, which certainly helps the economics. But um, in, in Peru, we're sitting on about 1.5, 1.6 billion pounds of zinc equivalent, um, whereas in Canada, we're sitting over north of 5 billion pounds of zinc equivalent, so mm. certainly a much larger Canadian resource base at the moment. But our rigs are turning in Peru, so I suspect we'll, we'll catch up pretty rapidly. Um, so yeah, that, that's really what we're sitting at. So certainly long life of mines, which is what you want to see. Um, you know, we anticipate very low production operation costs in Peru. Um, the reason for that is a very experienced operator, Glencore, um, they've got multiple of the you know six of these mines in operation in Latin America mm-hmm. alone. So we get access to their expertise, mm-hmm. and the ground conditions are very good. So really, what that means is you can have bigger openings underground. It's more mechanized, um, higher production rates, and that all helps to keep your costs down. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, on top of that, we've got our own power station, so you know the price of oil is largely indifferent to us. We're not exposed to it, so if mm-hmm. oil ramps up to whatever, $120, $150, you know, dollars per, per barrel, we're, we're producing hydroelectric power, um, mm-hmm. and that's what we're using, our main power source, so this all helps to keep our operation costs in, in, in check and in control,
4: which is quite nice. Very, very important. What about uh, your operating cost and, and uh, under well, let's say I don't know what assumptions you might use, but but what do you see your cost of, of producing zinc and, and what is the price of zinc these days? Sure, the price of zinc
6: is holding pretty steady at around a dollar a pound, um, which, which is pretty good. And um, like I said, there are you know the, the the various analysts are anticipating increases, you know, kind of over a three to five year period, a prolonged um, spike in zinc prices. You know, we think. You know, based on our internal numbers, um, we certainly think. You know, our, our Peruvian mine will will be in a lower quartile producer, or certainly pretty close to it. Um, and as mentioned for the reasons before, very significant silver, very cheap power, good gra- ground conditions. So that's obviously where you want to be, no matter what industry you're in. Um, you know, we should be cash positive in the good times and in the bad times. Um, you know, so we we can run run our business and take a bit of a longer term strategic re- you know view of things.
4: Mhm. What about uh, so? How much cash do you think this can throw off for your share of the uh, of the operation?
6: Um, you know, well,
4: I mean, forward-looking statements
6: I have to be a little bit, <laughs> be careful. Okay. Here. Um, well, do you, you do know, have some projections will be, um, that you might have made pretty public? Pretty significant, and that, that's all really I can say at the moment. We are working mm-hmm. on a PEA, and we hope to get out that that out later in the year. But um, needless to say, both ourselves and our partners Glencore are very bullish on it. Um, you know, in fact, you know that 2,000 ton per day mill. We're actually designing it so we can ramp up to 4,000 tons per day as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, another thing obviously improved since we last talked as well. We acquired a former silver mine, Huampar, which we think actually could be very significant as well. Um, Based on the historic production of this old mine, um, you know, it was running six-ounce silver. Um, So certainly at today's silver prices, um, it looks pretty attractive and um, about 7% base metal as well. And that's actually on the backhaul route to our Santander mine. So really that means is our empty ore trucks will be going within 10 kilometers of this property. Mm. And it's never had any modern exploration before. So we really think like Santander, since we acquired it, we found five new deposits. They all remain open for expansion. We think our new property, Huampar, also has the potential to, to do the same. So we're we're pretty keen to get the rigs turning on that one as well and try and um, wow. you know, intersect some very high-grade silver mineralization as well going forward.
4: Well, you have a lot going on in Peru, but we only have a couple of minutes left. Tell me a little bit about the New Brunswick project. Your resources—you mentioned you have five billion pounds of, of uh, zinc there. I think you said. What is your, your your overall resource, and what do the economics look like for that project?
6: Sure. Yeah, equivalent. it's zinc equivalent—it's looking very good. Um, the two key projects—one's called Half Mile, the other They're satellites to each other in northern New Brunswick, eastern Canada. And um, we're sitting on approximately you know twenty million tons of combined um, zinc lead mineralization. Um, Zinc lead about 10%, um, running about 0.3% copper, and looking at very significant silver as well. We just had a news release out today, and what we're finding is we're intersecting almost double to almost triple triple the silver grades compared to the historic resources. Um, The reason for that is they didn't routinely assay for silver, so they were underestimating silver values going forward. Um, and we're also getting about 0.5 grams per tonne gold as well, so we think it'll be a pretty significant precious metal component to the mineralization yeah. which, which we like. Um, very advanced, um, to be honest, construction has started, um, site is cleared, and we're hoping to have the first blast on the excess ramp literally in the next week or so. Um, so certainly, you know, based on our mining engineers, we strengthened our management team in the last week or two. Um, we're on track. We're hoping to start shipping ore in, in September this year, but certainly mm-hmm. in September, October this year, we should be um, shipping ore for treatment, uh, which is always a, a nice position to be.
4: Are, what about financing uh, to get these projects into production? Are you going to need to raise some more capital, or are you going to need to issue more shares? Um, no, certainly we will. Um, you know, we're in pretty good shape at the moment. We're sitting on
6: approximately $5 million. Um, a lot of interest. We're talking to various groups at the moment. Um, you know, traditional, obviously, equity, um, but we're also looking at some some debt options as well. So we're just actually currently weighing up what's the best fit for the company, given its growth po- profile, and obviously, more importantly, what's the least dilutive to our shareholders, our pre-existing shareholders. So I think in the next few weeks we'll make a call on that one, but we do have several very, you know, interesting options open
4: to us, and then um, we're just running the numbers at the moment and seeing what's mm-hmm. the best. Bit. Well, it certainly it looks like a very, very exciting story. You've got an awful lot of things going on. We didn't even mention that you have a, a hydroelectric project of your own, I think you're involved with, in Peru, perhaps.
6: Yes, that's correct, yes. And that's what's going to provide the cheap power for our Santander operation, and we're also going to have power sales as well coming out of that. So we'll have a a non-commodity revenue stream, and we'll have power sales coming out of Peru as well.
4: Um, Very, very interesting. I I wish we had more time. Unfortunately, that's all the time we do have. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Ian McAvity. Uh, You won't want to miss what he has to say, so don't go away. (coughs) (coughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I um. Are you st-
6: okay, Jay. Sorry. Thanks oh, for that. Okay. I'll let you go. Obviously I have
4: 15, a, a hell of a cold that I'm dealing with here and
6: No, no, no really worries bad. at all.
4: Um It's been torturous, yeah,
6: no, uh, I'll tell you. Uh, <coughs> <laughs>
0: Auriga Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific flin-flon greenstone belt. Auriga's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground ramp, year-round roads, and exploration access. Origa plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Auriga Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA.
5: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by.
1: This program is brought to you by Sandgold at www.sandgold.ca. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-10 gold mining region. Sandgold continues to show tremendous exploration success. With two mines already in production, the company is now revealing a new gold mining trend. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www dot Travali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada, is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Travali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV.
0: Voice America Business Network: The bottom line in business.
2: Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be. Sliding.
4: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Ian McAvitty. Ian has been writing the deliberations newsletter uh, on world markets uh, for, a global, for, for a global readership really since uh, 1972. I can remember seeing Ian uh, on Wall Street Week many years ago with Louis, Louis Rukeiser. Uh, so Ian is someone I've been uh, following and have been looking up to for many years. He draws on more than 48 years of experience in the world of finance as a banker and broker since 1961 and as an independent advisor and entrepreneur since 1975. Principally a technical analyst, uh, McAvity has written on global intermarket relationships since the 1970s, including the original research on relationships between gold mining shares and gold bullion. In 1983, Mr. McAvity was a founding uh, director uh, and advisor of the Central Fund of Canada. And in 2003, he was a founding trustee of the Central Gold Trust. In 2009, uh, Ian became a founding trustee of Silver Bullion Trust. Uh, SBT tr- is a symbol traded on the Toronto, uh, Toronto Exchange. Uh, he has been profiled by most of the major North American financial media, including the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and the Financial Post. And Ian has been a special guest on, as I just mentioned, on Lewis Rukeyser's Wall Street Week show, as well as Canada's uh, CTV uh, AM morning show and CBC's Business World. Welcome, Ian, again to turning hard times into good times. Hi, Jay. Really good to have you with me. Um, I, I really enjoy, always enjoy your, your newsletter and your um, uh, your commentary at the various shows uh, that we meet up with. And the last one we were together uh... with was the new york hard asset show and i happened to be on a panel uh... with you and adrian day and ian gordon rick rule was the moderator and the last question that i think that rick asked each of us was what are we bullish on for two thousand eleven and you came up with a novel answer compared to most of us uh... you know i think i said i thought uranium was a good was a good buy uh... but you come up with uh... the your answer was volatility uh, perhaps the VIX or however you measure it. Uh, has volatility picked up a bit since then, Ian? And, and tell us why you're concerned or why you think volatility is, is likely to rise.
7: Well, te- technically, I think that the stock market in New York has been topping out for the last several months. And I think that, in essence, that the recovery run by the stock market since March of 2009 is sort of in the ninth inning with two outs and possibly a couple of strikes on the batter. Mm. And the result, the result of that is volatility tends to expand on declining prices. Mm-hmm. And volatility has been, it, w- it was extremely low about a month ago. It's picked up a little bit from then. But the point I was trying to make is, you know, on the question that we were asked, you know, what's, what's your favorite investment for the next year? The presumption is what's going to go up the most. Yeah. And my comment, and I've made the comment in other places as well, was to to buy the VIX, the volatility index uh, that reflects the volatility of the S and P 500, because at that point it was around 15. And before year end, I'm quite sure that we're going to see some fairly sharp selling pressures hit in New York that will drive the VIX over 30. And there there now are some uh, ETFs that enable <clears throat> that enable the individual investor to participate in the VIX without having to go into the futures market. So my, my, in, in the back of my mind, is there's a possible double in volatility at some point. The one problem, the one problem with the volatility doubling is it'll happen on a day when your blood is curdling. Yeah. Because it typically is a really extreme down day when the big spikes.
4: Mm. So it's difficult to emotionally and uh, psychologically, it's difficult to play that a lot of times. And I imagine, you know, uh, amateur it, investors could get hit Pretty hard. Uh, probably just pull out at the wrong time.
7: Well, what I've, I what I, I quite often suggest to people that regard that describe themselves as long term investors, but they're nervous about the market and how to, you know. What do I suggest they do to hedge themselves? Uh, quite often, I suggest you can buy some volatility mm-hmm. as a downside hedge, so that you don't incur a taxable event. You know, selling a long term holding that you really would rather not sell. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, it's the VIX is essentially a negative bet on the market. Mm-hmm. That I'm, For most people, I think it's appropriate to view it as a, it's a little bit like buying life insurance. You're not mm-hmm. buying it in the hope of making a capital gain.
4: Yeah. But it's yeah. a form
7: of insurance for existing holdings.
4: Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, is there a name of an ETF? Are there a couple of ETFs that you could tell our listeners about? I would be curious to know myself.
7: Uh, well, there are there are there's you know, there's a VXX is one that trades in Canada. Mm-hmm. There are several different ones that trade in New York, and quite frankly, I don't know the ticker symbols okay. on them.
4: Oh, well, it's something but we can.
7: If they do a Google search or if they do a search in Yahoo uh, sure. Yahoo Finance, I'm quite sure they can find them.
4: Sure, very good. Uh, well, it's certainly something that I want to look after. I know that I've been bearish on the finance on the financials, and I wanna I wanna get your comments on the banking stocks and. Um, uh, one of the ways that I've played it but hasn't been very successful has been through FAS. It's a triple down short on the banks, but it they, they change the uh they change the port the mix in the uh in the ETF every day, I understand, so it's you're not really buying the same thing every day. But uh in your latest issue of deliberations you noted that um well, and you just noted now that global equity markets are topping out. What uh, what convinces you of that?
7: Uh, well, the, the two areas that led us down in the last crash, I think, are shaping up to lead us down into another leg. In economic terms, people will start to refer to it as the double dip recession, mm-hmm. but I'm not entirely convinced that we ever got out of the last one. Mm-hmm. But in essence, it was the banking stocks and the housing stocks that led us down mm-hmm. and back in 2006, 2007. And they basically both, you know, they got a huge bounce off the March of '09 bottom because of the, you know, QE1 with all the trillions of dollars that were being thrown into the system. But they peaked in April of, 10, of 2010. And they've been tracing out lower highs and lower lows since then. hmm And most recently, just in, yeah, just uh, this past week, uh, the bank index, uh, both the big bank index and the NASDAQ bank index, both broke below their 200-day moving average. Mm-hmm. And the European Bank Index uh, was actually broke below its 200-day moving average about three weeks ago.
2: Mm -hmm. So,
7: in my view, the banks have started a a down leg at this point, and it really becomes a question of how soon will the S and P 500 notice it.
4: Mm -hmm. What sort of weighting? It isn't something I've seen lately, but I know at the peak of the market, the financials had a huge weighting in the S and P 500, and the and the like the mining companies and the oil. Companies, the stuff companies, uh, commodity companies, essentially had a very low, uh, 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 com, uh, very low part of the S and P was in those segments.
7: What are I, I? I don't know the I don't know the specific weightings, but quite mm-hmm. clearly the commodity-related companies have increased their weightings, and the financials are are, are somewhat lower. Yeah. But, uh to me, to me, the the complete failure of the financial sector to be able to lodge higher highs since April of 2010, while the market did make higher highs, that's a divergence that I regard as a really serious technical development. Mm-hmm. And this, the same applies. The same applies to the housing. Mm-hmm. And the other comparable divergence that's been developing more recently is particularly over the last nine months or so. Is the Asian markets mm. uh, you, when you start thinking of you know the global growth story hinges on China, Brazil, and India, mm-hmm. but their markets all topped out more than six months ago, and they've been making lower highs and lower lows Wow and so you know to me the the global economy is basically sl- is saying we're slowing down, but the day trader mentality that seems to be dominating in New York these days. Mm-hmm. For as long as the Fed's buying bonds under the permanent uh, open market operations under QE2, yeah. you know, we'll worry about next week when it gets here.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm wondering if there are probably some good reasons that, that the bank stocks and the housing stocks and are showing lower highs and lower lows is that, you know, if you look fundamentally at it, Ian, you mentioned in spite of all this stimulus uh these these banks are not you know these stocks are not doing that well but also i would add uh, with respect to the bank stocks anyway that they took away mark to marketing at uh that uh, you know marketing to marking to markets at some point because they didn't want the world to see what was really in those portfolios or didn't want to and do you think that might have some impact that that really the markets are sensing or knowing that there's something that, that is far worse than what we're seeing in the bank. Oh, I, I,
7: I think so. Uh, if, you go back, if, you, if you go back to the original bailouts of March of '09, and I don't know if many of your listeners saw the recent HBO movie, uh, Too Big to Fail, hmm. they, the one thing that just became quite clear is in the bailout process, they literally didn't have a clue what the effects were going to be on all of their various actions. Mm-hmm. Kept changing things backwards and forwards. And one of the, to me, one of the most material uh, changes they made was they basically got the accounting standards board to change the rules so that they didn't have to publicize the mark-to-market values of their balance
4: sheet. Right.
7: You know, and then you ended up with the Fed buying an awful lot of paper, and the Fed doesn't uh, disclose any mark-to-market value because I, I refer to the Fed. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet now is probably the world's largest junk bond fund.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah, they they bought so much of that bad paper, then they've sold some of it off, and some of it obviously is going to be okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: But we just don't know.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, you uh, you mentioned in your latest newsletter, the one that just came out a few days ago, uh, that you see the European banks in trouble, and they're about to drag down the U.S. banks with them. What is your concern here? Is it the pig countries that might that might default and cause? Uh, a lot of hack on the balance sheets of uh, uh, it thinking.
7: seems to be that you know there's been a great you know a kerfuffle back and forth as to whether or not the most recent bailout of Greece is going to happen or is not going to happen mm-hmm. uh, i think it probably is going to happen but there'll be a lot of, a, a lot of uh, you know yelling and screaming and you know being you know, reluctantly dragged into a type of thing but at the same time, this, there's no question it exposes the vulnerability not just of the, of the European banks but the global banking system to not just the Greek debt problems but also the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Irish, and the Italian. You know, the Italian debt problems, they're the most recent credit <coughs> downgrade. Mm-hmm. The One difference between Italy and the others is Italy at least has some fairly substantial gold reserves. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they've got just a hopeless uh, debt uh, debt mountain, and you know their their tax system is legendary uh, for its inability to collect the taxes.
4: Mm-hmm. Much as the Greeks um, too, I know. Um, well, well, okay. So Italy has gold. I was um, I was on the Fox Business show the other day, and the question was, should the United States sell its gold to pay down its debt? And um, uh, you know, and first of all, I said, well, we don't really know how much gold we have. It hasn't been audited since the 1930s or since uh, Eisenhower. Um, what, what is your thought on that, Ian? Do you think that we may be moving towards some sort of a gold-backed system down the road here?
7: I, I doubt that we'll ever end up with, uh, well, with what I might call a simplistic gold standard, where the currency was was tied to the gold price. I do envision, I do envision the evolution of a discipline where you know, currencies, the major currencies, will try to tie themselves to some basket mm-hmm. of commodity-related prices, which would include gold. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and basically, the drivers of that most likely will be the Chinese, the Brazilians, the Indians, the Russians, and Koreans and Saudis.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: You know, America will be dragged in, kicking and screaming.
4: Well. Why should we be if we have all the gold we say we have? We're supposed to have, by far and away, the biggest gold reserves of anybody.
7: Well, this is I'm very hopeful that Ron Paul, with his, with his finance committee, will be able to embarrass them into finally agreeing to an audit uh, mm-hmm. for, for you know, a disclosure.
2: Mm-hmm. Or should
7: we see a confirmation of what mm-hmm. gold is there and whether or not there are commitments against it? Mm hmm. I, I have a hard believe a hard time believing that a lot of the stories about the gold not being there I I have a hard time believing that if only because I can't believe that a government that leaks like a sieve could keep that secret.
4: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Well certainly uh it, it would clarify some things and, and would certainly um you know clarify an issue that the gold antitrust action guys have been screaming and hollering about for some time mm. um, yeah so italy has a lot of gold how would how would this be put back and i mean how would it be implemented Would the countries that have a lot of gold then would be in a stronger position i guess wouldn't they be
7: well in, in the case of italy it would probably be a question of possibly doing some sort of a collateralized major loan
2: Mm-hmm.
7: Know, if 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 they got into a situation where they had a financial squeeze on a, on a rollover, they're mm-hmm. they're 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 not as close to that as Greece, Spain, and Portugal are.
2: Mm-hmm. But
7: at some stage, you can envision Italy making some sort of an emergency loan that would be uh, perhaps secured mm-hmm. you know, by some of their gold holdings. Yeah, because the, the nature the nature of markets, you don't have to have 100% backing. You don't necessarily have to have 100% backing, but if they put up a big chunk of gold that covered a third or a half of an issue, they could borrow a huge amount of
4: money. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the Fed really doesn't want us to know a lot about, if anything, about what it's up to. Um, it drags its feet uh, in terms of reporting what it's what it's doing, and uh, uh, stone walls, and uh, it, uh, I know that it took a... A court decision against the Fed for them to reveal that they had taken a good portion of some two trillion dollars uh, and uh, to help bail out the European banks before uh, when Bloomberg uh, went to court and to get that information out of the Fed uh, do you do you see the possibility of the Fed possibly you know coming in again to the rescue of the European banks is that something you think could happen again
7: I, I could envision the Fed participating in a deal, but they certainly wouldn't take a leading role in it. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my guess is that in the background, you have probably got the Chinese uh, quite uh, quite invisibly, you know, sort of you know, telling Germany that they will be there to help save the euro.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: You know, the, structurally, the euro's in the sense is a hopeless currency in the sense that it's not backed by a tax system or an army. Yeah, you know, it's basically it's structured as a political agreement, but on the other side of the coin, it has worked quite well up to this point. Of you know, this is the first time it's facing a crisis, and the world really needs a liquid alternative to the dollar. Mm -hmm. So the major holders of dollars, I think, when push comes to shove, will step forward to preserve the existence of the euro. It may well end up being a euro that excludes uh, a number of the Mediterranean countries that basically shouldn't have been included in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, Greek, Italy, the Greeks, uh, the, the Italians, and the Spanish, and the Portuguese, and some of the Eastern European countries probably could never—they couldn't afford to come into the euro. But the the eurocrats, the political bodies, just got overly ambitious about trying to expand their empire.
4: Mm-hmm. You make a very good point. I, in my view, uh, when you said the euro doesn't have a tax system or a stand, or an army to back up its currency, I, it would seem to me that that is certainly one thing that the U.S. does have in spades: its military force. Mm-hmm. And to what extent do you think that is a factor in keeping the dollar as a as the major world's reserve currency yet?
7: Well, it's, it certainly is a factor, but the you know the size of the U.S. economy and the maturity of the U.S. economy is clearly a, an additional factor to it. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Uh, in your latest newsletter, you talked about U.S. housing uh, again. Um, the U.S. housing being, uh, you know, the, the, really just really in a depression, and no other way to describe it. You talked, you showed a chart in the front page of your letter that showed, I think, housing starts at around five hundred thousand. Uh, annualized, and, you know, this is, in prior times, since 1959, um we would see the bottom at sort of a million starts per year. That would be sort of a, and then an immediate bounce up. Here we've been down around 500,000 for the last few years, and, you know, before there would be, that would be sort of an inflection point and then back up. Uh, how long is this gonna go on? I, I mean, um, you, you, point out also that the 72%, uh, the, the American population has grown 72%, so, that chart is really—it's really worse than it looks like, and it's horrible the way it looks now. Well, what will it take to get the housing industry back uh, on its feet as a significant
7: contributor? I don't contributor? think that the housing—I don't think that the U.S. housing industry is coming back for a number of years, mm-hmm. and it's not going to come back on, on a couple of different counts. Uh, number one, the availability of mortgage finance. Number two, the number of houses that are under foreclosure or in default and will be foreclosed on, creating this huge mountain of, you know, essentially of houses that are for sale but are not on the market visibly. Mm -hmm. And second and thirdly, the American standard of living for the last 10 years was artificially supported by people, you know, the, the, the phrase was monetizing their house. Right now, and for years for years, a lot of the seminars you would have heard me use the phrase that we've got a generation of consumers that are eating their house one brick at a time. Yes, and yet every farmer knows you don't eat the seed corn. And the problem is the family home has traditionally been the, the dominant family asset, mm-hmm. and they basically destroyed that asset base. Mm-hmm. And so you know the overall reduction of the American standard of living. Is basically getting away from the dependence on debt, and that's—it's going to take several years to work that off,
4: right? And change a, a change of mindset, and um, I just have to wonder. If it seems to me that what policy is now to try to delay the inevitable, and in spite of this massive amount of stimulation that you talked about, the trillions of dollars and, and fiscal uh, uh, fiscal stimulus as well that we still haven't been able to get anywhere. It's just bouncing off this 500,000 starts a year and a depression that is... And, and this is one of the bigger employers in the economy, isn't it, housing?
7: Oh, it is. The, the, the you know, home construction business is a huge employer. Mm-hmm. You know, And it, and the beauty of it is it's a local employer, so it really spreads the, you know, it spreads the job creation out. And bear in mind that the stabilizing of the housing starts number down around five hundred thousand or so—that yeah. has been the benefit. That's benefited from two sets of tax credits. Mm-hmm. You know, tax credits for first-time buyers. Right. And the minute the first one expired, the starts number started to collapse again. So then they brought a second one in, mm-hmm. and it was on the second one when they realized all they were doing was bringing forward. You know future sales, and it wasn't really going to accomplish anything
4: mm-hmm.
7: but at this stage uh, at this stage, you've still got a, a huge number I've forgotten I, I hear various numbers, I'm not sure about the percentages, but you've still got you know something twenty five thirty thirty five percent of the of the mortgages outstanding are underwater
2: mm-hmm.
7: Mm-hmm. You know, and people are you know being advised in editorial columns to just you know stop paying your mortgage
4: right
7: It'll take them two years to throw you out of the house,
4: right. You know. And in many and in many cases they can't Just find the. It's the
7: foundation for a solid economy.
4: <clears throat> Indeed, it's not, and in many cases they can't find the documentation, even as to who, uh, you know, who really owns the house and um, oh, exactly, and, the, and who's financed it and where, where, which bank owns the paper. So it's it's a huge mess. There's no doubt about it. Well, Ian, we're going to have to take a break here for a commercial, uh, and when we come back, I'm going to ask you about uh, the oil markets the commodity markets and of course gold and silver and the share markets as well. So folks don't go away we're going to be right back with Ian Committee.
0: When it comes to business you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining.
5: Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with BITE with operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by.
0: Origa Gold is a Canadian mine development and exploration company working in Manitoba's prolific flin-flon greenstone belt. Auriga's experienced management team is focused on developing the Maverick Gold Project and expanding gold resources. Maverick Gold includes historical gold resources, a 1,000-ton-per-day mill, developed underground ramp, year-round roads, and exploration access. Auriga plans to bring Maverick Gold back into production in 2012. Auriga Gold trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol AIA the high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Alteus, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits. To help secure America's productive future, investors can share in the potential rewards. Mill Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.